Thank you for downloading this sermon from Heritage Baptist Church. We are so glad that you did. We believe that biblically faithful, Christ-centered, God-glorifying local churches are the primary means that God has chosen to expand His kingdom. If you are part of such a church, we hope that this message will supplement your spiritual diet. If you aren't yet part of such a church, we would love for you to visit us. For more details, please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za You know how in this world, at least all of us in here believe one conspiracy theory, right? I mean, there are so many out there in the world. There's conspiracy theories about the fact that men actually never landed on the moon, right? That they were somewhere in somebody's backyard um, and everything was staged, right? Uh, my favorite conspiracy theory actually is that Nelson Mandela died in prison and the person that we knew for many years was some imposter from Mozambique who came, you know, to take his place. And there's, there's actually people who, who believe this. Maybe it's true, we really don't know, right? But the whole point of this is that in the world that we live in, there's, there's all of these conspiracy theories and things that people believe. And the underlying thing that exists behind every conspiracy theory is the idea that there's this group of people who actually control the world and who are constantly playing the world like it's a sort of a chessboard, putting things into place, making wars and, and causing a lot of strife and, and doing all of these different things and they're actually the ones who are controlling the world, right? There's, there's that underlying belief of a sort of puppet master behind all of this that is actually in control of everything um, and that there are these backdoor conversations that we are not privy to that happen but that ultimately control almost everything that we have in our life. Well, to some degree, there is a conspiracy theory or some form of conspiring that we also see that constantly happens in the scriptures. And we first see it actually in the book of Genesis chapter 1, where we see that, not Genesis chapter 1, actually, Genesis chapter 3, where there is the fall of man. And you see there that there is the serpent who conspires to sort of cause the fall of Eve and his, his, her husband, Adam. And after that, the conspiring doesn't end, right? From that point, we are told that there is enmity between the serpent and the seed of Adam and Eve, right? So that from that time on, moving forward, there's this sort of enmity that happens between the serpent, which in this, this picture is the devil, and the human race, and there's this war that happens. And in the background, the devil is constantly working to undo the work of God through multiple different things, right? We see that he tries to undo the work of God by destroying the seed that is promised by God who will come to crush and destroy the works of the serpent. So from Genesis chapter 3, moving on until the death of Christ is actually the unraveling of this conspiracy of the serpent as he tries time and time again through several plans and several means to make sure that the seed of man that is coming to destroy him will ultimately not be able to come into the earth. We see him try first with, with, with the, the king of Egypt when he tries to kill all the children of who are born um, from the Israelites in order to try and somehow annihilate the, the, the children of Israel. We see it in all the enemies that come up um, that are against the children of Israel in order to destroy them and to cause them to fall. We also see it sadly in the killing of the children who were under two years by King Herod before the birth of Christ. All of these things are happening because under, behind all of these actions is a serpent who's somewhat pulling these strings to bring across and to bring about his own plans. But thankfully, that conspiring of the serpent never really worked. 
because Christ came, Christ died, and Christ accomplished the work that he was meant to do. And as if we would expect that there would be a bit of a husa then, the conspiring would be over, but what actually happened is that he turns his attention from trying to stop Christ from coming to now trying to stop the people of Christ from growing and achieving, from achieving and, and becoming that which God has called them to be, being a true bride of Christ. So from that time on, we see it in the book of Acts, even as we were going through this morning, that there's this conspiring of the serpent that still continues in him raising up all of these different kings, raising up all these different Jews in the book of Acts to attack the apostles, to stop them from continuing the message that, he was, uh, that they were called to do. So in the entire church history, we see this. We see this also with Nero, right? Nero, this, this crooked emperor in, in, in Rome who basically attacks the entire children of God and tries, sort of springs up a great tribulation against them in order to destroy the gospel. And ever since then, even to this day, there, are, there is this conspiring happening in the background. There is this enemy to the church, this enemy to the people of God that is constantly making plans, constantly working in order to bring about the destruction of the church, in order to bring about the apostasy of the children of God. And so how do we take this? How do we, how do we react today in a world where we know this? How do we have hope in this time when we have all of these trials and difficulties and temptations that come in? whether it be for us as individuals or even for us as a church as we go through a difficult time? How do we react to these seeming workings of this evil one who has been conspiring and continuing to conspire from the beginning of time? And I think this book that we are about to read sort of starts to paint a picture of how we as children of God ought to react and also to give us hope that this has been happening for millennia and God has always been winning for millennia. So let's go to the book of Esther and read from chapter 3 from verse 1. Um, we'll read now, firstly, the first six verses, just conscious of time, and then we'll read sort of verse 7 to 14 a little bit later. So Esther chapter 3 from verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agite, the son of Hamedatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's palace, at the king's gate, bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had, had so commanded concerning him, but Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to, to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So in this portion of scripture, we are introduced finally to the antagonist of this book. And this antagonist is identified as a man named Haman, who is, and, and he, it is said that he is an Agite. Agite. Agagite. Agagite. So the description of him as an Agagite is actually very important if you understand the history of the children of Israel and where it comes from. So if you go back to Exodus chapter 17, you see that in that portion of scripture, after Israel was taken out of captivity in Egypt, 
and as they were in the desert, the, a nation by the name of the Amalekites came to attack them for absolutely no reason. They were just chilling in the desert, thirsty and complaining to God, and these guys just came and attacked them for absolutely no reason. And from that day, there has been sort of war between the Amalekites and Israel. In verse 15 of Exodus chapter 17, this is what God says to Moses. Moses built an altar and named it, the Lord is my banner. And he said, the Lord has sworn the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. So from this, we see that this, this, this people of the Amalekites and Israel were to continue to be at war with each other because of what Amalek did when Israel was uh, released from captivity in Egypt. We later see the Amalekites again in 1 Samuel when Saul is commanded by God to go and destroy all of them, right? God tells him to go kill everything from the cats to the dogs and to leave absolutely nothing and no one alive. But Saul spared the king and some of his precious possessions and the name of that king was Agag. Agag. Depends where you went to school. <laughs> but let's say it's Agag. So this, this king called Agag is spared by Saul, and he is believed to be the forefather of Haman, right? And Agag was later killed by, by Samuel uh, in, in a dreadful way because God had actually commanded them to kill them. So we see and we are introduced to this man, Haman, who from the beginning is introduced actually as an enemy to the Jews, right? And the first thing that we actually see about Haman that we are told about him is that he's promoted, Right? So King Ahasuerus promotes Haman to basically be the second in command of his entire kingdom and all of the different provinces that they rule over. Now this should be a little bit weird and concerning for us because immediately before this portion of scripture as Benji was going through last week, we see that Mordecai actually saved the king's life and nothing happened. Right? So he hears of a plot to kill the king, he makes it known to the king, the king's life is spared, and life continues. It's as if nothing happened. Mordecai is in no way promoted. He's in no way recognized for his actions immediately. But the first thing that we see after Mordecai saves the king is that this man, Haman, is lifted up to the point of being second in command. And we don't even know the reason why he's, that, that happens, right? And this should continuously bring to our minds the question that even David asks in the Psalms, that, that why do the wicked prosper, right? Why does it seem that the Christians and, 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 and the righteous who constantly do right are sometimes always in the back foot while the wicked continue to prosper? And indeed, even in this world, we live in, such a, in, in that kind of a world where as Christians we, are, we work hard and we are faithful and we do what is right, but sometimes do not receive the labor of our fruits but we constantly see the elevation of the wicked. And so how, are we, how do we react to living in such a world? How do we react and live in a world where we often feel like we are in the back foot? Well, I think this portion of scripture to some degree and in, in, in some way shows us how Haman, or not Haman, but how Mordecai reacted um, in, this, in this time. Verse two tells us, if you go to verse two, it says, and all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him, but Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to Haman. So you have this man who is an enemy of the Jew, potentially very wicked and actually very wicked as we shall begin to see, who is elevated to the point of being second in command. All the people are commanded to bow down to him as a, a decree that comes to the king. 
But Haman, not Haman, Mordecai chooses instead not to bow down. I want us to consider for just five minutes, why did Mordecai choose this? Why, why did Mordecai choose not to bow down to Haman? And also, was he right for not doing so? I think there are a couple of reasons that have been proposed for this over the centuries and over the years. The first one is that potentially Mordecai saw it wrong to bow down before men as king uh, and, and saw it as some sort of a contravention of the Ten Commandments. But we know from scripture and from history that this is not really right and correct. You know, we also have examples in scripture of things like Nathan bowing down before King David whenever he came to see him. So I don't think that that would be the reason. A second reason that is connected to that is that because Haman was a, a, a pagan, he most likely had a symbol or some sort of a, 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 an idol around his neck, and Mordecai bowing down to him would be in some way him bowing down to that idol. This answer is also not satisfactory. It says more than what the text says, and it's a little bit reaching. The third reason is that potentially Mordecai was jealous, right? Because he saved the king's life and he's forgotten, but Haman is elevated instead. So it could be that he has some sort of jealousy that he was being overlooked at this time for saving the king's life. And given the immediate context that we come from, this is a potential reason. The fourth reason that is usually given is that Mordecai identified Haman with being with the Amalekites and therefore being at enmity with the children of Israel and therefore could not bring himself to bow down to somebody who was uh, wicked and also an enemy of the Jews. And this reason actually, I believe, is, is potentially the most likely reason to say that, and, and, and I think verse 4 gives that a little bit, or points a little bit to that, because verse 4 says, and when they spoke to him, him being Mordecai, day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words will stand. By Mordecai's words, they mean Mordecai's reason for not bowing down to him. And they said, for he told them that he was a Jew, right? So he, he anchors his not bowing down to Haman, to his identity as a Jew, and the potential feud between him and the Amalekites, or the Jews and the Amalekites, and therefore in some ways between him and Haman. So if this is the reason, or if any of these reasons are true, the question is, if any of the last two reasons rather are true, the question is, was Mordecai right for not bowing down? Well, I think that if we were to survey the scriptures and to sort of see within the scriptures what they tell us to do and how to react, particularly to rulers that are not godly or some that we continuously see as our own enemies, I think we will come to the conclusion that Mordecai actually was not right in not bowing down. That the scripture constantly tells us that we ought to honor those who rule over us and we ought to obey them in all things that do not contravene the word of God. And because in this portion of scripture, there was nothing sinful, there was nothing evil, there was nothing that, that, that was deceptive that was asked of Mordecai to do, he acted completely out of his own pride of looking at his status as a Jew to being something that is so elevated that he cannot bow down to somebody who was an enemy to the Jews. His heart of pride rooted in his Jewish identity is ultimately what leads him to the point when he disobeys God by disobeying the king. I think, think about this also in the time of the church, right? In, in, in the book of Romans, Paul tells the Romans that they should honor those who lord over them. It is in the time when they were going through a big persecution. It was in the time where there were rulers who were against them as Christians, but Paul still looks at them and he says, honor those guys. 
Honor them. Why? Because that's what the Lord would have us to do. So even if Haman was evil, even if Haman was not a good guy, even if Haman was wicked, the Lord still calls us to honor those who lord over us, even when we do not like them, even when they do not believe what we believe, and even when we do not find them to be righteous. And I think this is something that we as believers ought to take seriously and move with in our, in our own life, that we do not fall into the same trap that Mordecai falls into, you know, to have this sort of Christian pride that says, I'm righteous, so why would I bow down or listen to or honor anyone who is wicked? To say that I am righteous and, and saved by God and saved by Christ, therefore, why would I pay homage to or, or bow down to, in, in a non-worshipping way, of course, to somebody who I deem to be not worthy? And I think particularly in our African context, this plays a role in a lot of the family dynamics that we find ourselves in. Because many of us in here might find ourselves in families where our elders worship idols or they give themselves to that way of living. How do we react to that? They are still our elders. Do we look at them in some form of disrespectful way and engage with them in some sort of a disrespectful tone because we believe that what they are doing is not godly? No. We ought to still continue to honor them even as if they were honoring the Lord. We ought to continue to see them as our elders and honor them. Because in the same way that Paul encourages wives with unbelieving husbands to say that maybe they might be one without you even speaking a word, who knows that maybe even in us showing honor in times where there's disagreement, showing respect, even in times where we do not see eye to eye, that even in those times we might be able to win those um, who do not believe. So I think it's, it's something that we ought to learn from Mordecai to not do what he did in this case, I guess, but to continue to challenge ourselves even in difficult situations and circumstances to act righteously even when we believe that the situation might give us reason to do the opposite. So we see here that Mordecai acts in this way and acts from a place of pride. But that is not what really brings about the, the big event in this, in this verse. It is what, how Haman reacts to this. Let's quickly go to verse 5 of this chapter. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So here we have a picture of a man who has been elevated to the point of being second to command to the king. He has many possessions, many successes, and the second most famous person in the kingdom. And his ego is hurt. His pride is hurt. And immediately there arises within him this, this rage and this fury against not only Mordecai, but his entire people. Because of his anger and his pride that is somewhat hurt or that is somewhat triggered, he resolves in his mind not only to punish Mordecai, which maybe would have been just if he were to put him in jail, but he decides to go the step further to actually kill or to devise a plan to destroy the entire children of Israel. What an overreaction. What an overreaction. What are we supposed to take from this? There's, there's one small offense to some degree that leads now to the destruction of an entire people just because one man and his pride and his anger are hurt. I think we might all look at this in an isolated manner and decide in our minds that what Mordecai or what Haman did was completely wrong and it is completely off. 
But I want to maybe remind us that we also stand in danger of being in the same, in the same page. Because what happened actually with Haman is that he had a problem of anger and pride within his heart that he never dealt with. And when the right situation came, it gave him the reason to bring it up and to let sin overflow in his life. And I think this is a similar thing that we face or a similar danger that we face as believers in Jesus Christ whenever we let darling sins continue to reign or rule or remain in our hearts. When we have these trinklets of pride and anger that remain that we do not deal with because they just remain in our hearts and they are never shown. All that they are waiting for is the right circumstance and the right situation before they boil over and destroy ourselves and even the body of believers that we might be in. You see, the, the, the sins that we ought to fight are not just sins that show themselves in our actions, but they're also sins that show themselves in our hearts when we are alone in our rooms. Are those sins that show themselves in our thoughts where nobody else can see? And this is why Christ, when he came, he take, took the definition of sin and brought it def directly to the heart to say unto us that it is not only murder that is wrong, but if you are angry with your brother and you say unto him, Raka, you are guilty of murder. Or if you look at a woman lustfully with your eyes, you are guilty of adultery or fornication with that, with that woman. Why? Because sins of the heart are still as evil as sins that we commit. And they are the breeding ground of us living out. They are just waiting for the right situation, the right circumstance, the right temptation, the right person to say the right things to us, and then they will boil over and give rise to more sin. So I think there's also a lesson for us to learn from how Haman reacts and from how Haman lives to say unto us that we ought not to leave the sins in our hearts to remain, that we ought not never to leave the sins in our hearts to remain to rule, but every time they come up, every spring or every time they show their heads, we ought to fight them even as the Lord Jesus Christ has commanded us. But now we come to, I guess, the high point of this chapter from verse 17 to 14. Let's quickly read these, these few verses. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast per, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of the king. Their laws are different from those of every people and they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they, are, that they be destroyed and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite and the son of Hamadatha, the, the enemy of the Jews, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, that money is given to you, the people also do to do with them as it, please, as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's uh, satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials over all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by, by, by couriers to all the king's provinces with the instruction to destroy 
destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar and the plunder of the, and, 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 which is the month of Adar and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document uh, was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out and hurriedly by order of the king and the decree was issued to Susa, the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink and the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So here we see Haman's plan coming into action. We see him going towards the king and, and this conspiracy that, we, that, 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 that was against the people of Israel, we start to see it form with Haman as he uses the excuse of Mordecai and his disobedience to hatch a plan to kill the entire people of Israel. And I hope to some degree when you think about this and when you read this, it shocks you, right? To say, how, how can such a small offense lead to such an over-exaggerated punishment? Well, it should shock you because obviously it is nonsensical that this reason that Haman, Haman gives is not a true reason, it's not logical, it is the thinking and the working of a depraved man. But as we have spoken before, behind Haman is an evil serpent. Behind Aman is the serpent, the evil serpent who has been working since the beginning of time, who has control over Haman's heart and mind and is using him to actually hatch out his own plan. You see, in this entire story, Haman is just a pawn in the plan of somebody who's doing something even more evil. And I think the reason that he gives here of, how, of Mordecai not bowing down to him should be to some degree evidence of that. That there is no way that he would want to destroy an entire people because one person didn't want to bow down. But it's because it has nothing to do with Haman. It has nothing to do with Mordecai. It has everything to do with the promise that God gave in Genesis 3 that the serpent desires and is conspiring to make sure ultimately does not come true. It has nothing to do with Haman. There is a, a person or a being or, or an evil man behind all of this that is trying to do this. And this has been the story throughout the entirety of the Christian faith. As we saw, as Pastor Lelo spoke about today, why did they kill Jesus? Even Pontius Pilate stood before them and said, this man is innocent. But even with that, they fought to kill him and to put him to death. Why? Because it wasn't them. Well, it was them. But it wasn't them. There was a serpent. There was the evil one that was working behind them, that was using their actions, that was using their motives to fulfill what he ultimately wanted to do. So here we have this man who is being used by the evil serpent to fulfill his own plans, who is being controlled like the puppet master, who is being conspired against like, 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 like we have seen. And there are a couple of interesting things that we can also see about this man, Haman. The Bible tells us that Haman, in, in his plan, uh, he takes it to the king in order for, for the king to sanction it. And while he's there, he offers the king 10,000 silver talents, right, in order for him to, to sort of give to the king as some sort of a bribe. Now, if you were to look at this, this would amount to about, a, in today's money terms, would about, amount to about $160 million today. It's a lot of money. But even more interestingly, this would amount to two-thirds of the actual revenue of the entire empire. So if you think about it, if they were to think about, you see SARS, the entire SARS, the, the people that take your money on payday and you never look at your payslip because of them. Imagine if all the money that they took, they took two-thirds of that and dedicated it towards the destruction 
of a particular people group. This is exactly what Haman is doing. This is exactly what Haman is proposing to be done. And this shows you the excessive desperation and passion with which Haman desired to destroy the people of God because one person did not bow down to him. He's willing to literally use every single ounce of wealth he has left in order to bring about this plan because of an absolutely nonsensical reason. So we see that the children of Israel have this enemy who is passionate and desperately desiring to kill them. But more than that, they also have an enemy who has the resources to do so. He has the resources to bring about their destruction. He has the resources to call and, 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 and the money to bring about this war and to actually fund their destruction. But he doesn't stop there. Not only does he stop there, but he also goes to the king and even worse, he partners with the king ultimately so that this, this request that he's given is not just a one-man request, but is actually the request from the king and the request from the nation to bring about the destruction of the Jews. Then in verse 12, we see sort of this plan get into motion with Haman and King Ahasuerus banding together to bring about the destruction of the Jews. And they commit all the resources of the kingdom so that when the day comes for them to destroy the people of Israel, that everybody is set, right? They send all the horsemen to go across the entire country so that the entire nation is aroused and, and, and enticed by the possibility of plundering the wealth of the Jews to rise up and to kill them. I want you in this time to put your, your, yourself in the mind of, the Jew, of a Jew, to put yourself in the condition of, of, of how a Jew would be thinking in this time. You have an enemy who is obviously controlled by the serpent, who is excessively passionate and desperate for your destruction. Not only that, he has resources at his disposal to actually bring about this entire destruction. And he's partnered with the king, and the king has put it across the entire nation so that the entire nation is now incentivized to bring about this destruction. How do you feel? Where is your hope at this time? At this time, you have just recently gone back to your own land. You're trying to rebuild walls. You're trying to rebuild the temple. You have no army. You have absolute, potentially no, no land really that you can really leverage for this. You are literally at the mercy of the Persian king at the state. There is no means of defense that you can bring across or to bring by in order to fight and win this war. What will be your hope when such a great enemy rises up against you? What will be your hope? And, 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 and it's not just that the enemy has risen up against you, but it's that he rises up against you at a time where you actually have no means to fight him. He rises up against you at the time where you are at your lowest, where you have absolutely no strength to fight for yourself. What do you do in this time? I think this is a question that has been asked of Israel many times, and it is a question that we see constantly also being asked of the church. And the answer always remains the same, that our hope is in the God who made the promise, that our, God, our hope is in the God who keeps his covenant to the fourth and to the fifth generation, whom we know even in the times where we have no means to save ourselves, he can save us even in the smallest and most minute means, that he's able to use the simplest means possible to bring about the salvation of his people. So as you think about it today, maybe there is no war necessarily against us as Christians here in South Africa. We have potentially the pleasure of not being in a place where we would be persecuted physically for being in a world or, or, or gathering or meeting together like this. But this does not mean that our enemy is not at work. 
Because in every temptation that we face, in every trial that we face, in every difficulty that we go through that causes us to doubt God or that causes us to lose faith in God, that causes us to doubt and, or, or to even be pushed into any form of sin, in that way we see whether collectively as a church or as individuals, the works of the serpent, the conspiring of the serpent coming against us, what will be our hope in those times? where we see sin rising up against us and temptation after temptation after temptation coming up against us. Or as a congregation where we go through a difficult time that we don't know how to explain or don't know how to get out of, what will be our hope? Our hope should be the same as has always been, that behind the serpent, there's an even greater king. That behind the serpent, there's an even greater king who really is the puppet master, who really is the one who is sovereign over everything. Even the devil is his devil, and he goes only as far as he will let him go. So even in all these circumstances and all the situations that we have, we find ourselves in, our hope ought always to be in the greater king, because ultimately he is the real one who is in control over everything. In conclusion today, Pastor Lelo is giving me the eye. In conclusion today, if you are in here today and you are not saved, if you have not made Christ Jesus the one and only trust that you have, then you have an even greater enemy than Haman. You have made the Lord your enemy, the great ruler and the greater king. And unlike Haman, unlike the world, unlike the flesh, unlike the devil, his plans cannot be thwarted. Once he has endeavored to do something, no man can stop him. And yes, he has spoken in the scriptures that he will pay every sin and he will pour out his wrath on every sin on the day of judgment. He will indeed do so and there is no one who will be able to stop him. And if you think in some ways that by not accepting him you are saved because you'll be put into some form of floating oblivion, I don't know what you might be believing. But I just want you to know that if you have not made Christ your only hope, you may have a greater enemy than him. And the only one who can save you from him is himself. Run to him. Run to him and make Christ your only shelter. You see, we all have enemies. The enemy of the world is the church. The enemy of the church is the world. But the world has an even greater enemy, which is God, who will come to pay every sin that has ever been committed. But to us, there is hope as believers in Christ. That in, in, the, in, the, in the sight of all difficulty, in the sight of all persecution, in the sight of every trial and every difficulty that we go through, there is one who is sovereign behind all of this, who is able to save even through the most simple of means. He doesn't need an army. He doesn't need, he doesn't need all the resources in the world. All he needs is himself, and he will do it. So let us take heart and let us take courage. Amen.